0: Hey everyone, this is usually the time I tell you about our email newsletter, but I wanted to talk to you about something else. As of January 2023, It's All Journalism is hosted on Spotify's Megaphone platform, so you can subscribe to our podcast there, or you can continue subscribing, listening, or download new episodes of our podcast at Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, or just about anywhere you can find podcasts. But wherever you find us, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode, and like and share us on your social media. And now, this week's episode.
1: I was the wrong person to be telling the stories, but that doesn't mean that the stories there couldn't be told. In fact, I was surrounded by local people, local women in particular who had the social, historical, you know, political, linguistic context to tell these true and powerful stories that local people needed, but also the world needed.
0: Being a foreign correspondent is something that is appealing to many journalists. But should we be romanticizing what is really a form of parachute journalism? I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. The international journalism industry has a long way to go in terms of gender equity. Christy Hegrenis is the founder and CEO of Global Press, which is working to increase proximate storytelling by employing local women journalists in some of the world's least covered places. She's here today to tell us about it. Christy, thanks for coming on It's all Journalism.
1: Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So first of all, tell me a little about yourself. How'd you get involved in journalism?
1: Well, if you ask my mom, she will tell you that I was about six years old the first time I said I wanted to be a journalist. And I had a teddy bear shaped notebook and a very dutiful blue crayon that I used to take around with me recording the every happenings of my home. So it really was my my dream job is all I ever wanted to be was a journalist, particularly a foreign correspondent, traveling the world and telling its stories was what I wanted to do with my life. And so, you know, growing up, I was Editor of all the school papers and all the, you know, the internships and the jobs, et cetera. And when I was getting my master's at NYU, I managed to turn a classroom assignment into the opportunity to go to Nepal to report on some gender issues during the Civil War there. And from there, that's where, you know, my career trajectory really changed from someone who wanted to be a parachute journalist to someone who ended up founding a nonprofit organization.
0: Wow. And just so you know, you're not the first person who has has said that they they, kindergarten or grade school that they've, that's where they kind of got the bug. Uh, You seem a little bit more like Harriet the Spy going around (laughs) recording your family members. So tell me about Global Press. What led you to the founding of it? And, you know, what's its mission? So
1: it all started with that kind of fateful trip to Nepal. I went to Nepal with the intention of being that traditional Parachute journalist, foreign correspondent, someone who went into a place they don't know and was able to unearth incredible stories to kind of enlighten the world. And what ended up happening on that trip was actually quite the opposite. I was really overwhelmed for the first time with the the logistics, the ethics and the reality of foreign correspondence and parachute journalism and came to the pretty quick realization that I was the wrong person to be telling those stories. I did not have the context. I did not have the access. Local people didn't trust me. I was working through government-employed translators. And then there was the a funny thing that I had never thought about before, which is that foreign correspondence is about people that it isn't for. And as I traveled throughout Nepal, I was so struck by the degree to which local people really needed access to accurate information. They needed extraordinary journalism. And someone like me parachuting into their country only to tell stories outside of it, wasn't actually helpful and actually was deeply problematic in many ways. So it was on that trip to Nepal that the idea for global press really came to me. This notion that I was the wrong person to be telling the stories, but that doesn't mean that the stories there couldn't be told. In fact, I was surrounded by local people, local women in particular, who had the social historical, you know, political linguistic context to tell these true and powerful stories that local people needed, but also the world needed. And so that was the founding idea is, you know, we need to change the story. And the best way to do that is to start by changing the storyteller. And from there, the the narrative and the way we understand the world and the people in it really transforms. And so that's what global press is all about. Our mission is to create a more informed and inclusive world by changing the storyteller of record from parts of the world that are typically only covered in terms of war, poverty, disaster, and disease. That when we employ a local press corps of trained, talented local journalists, we can tell a totally different story about the world.
0: Such a wonderful realization. I mean, I think we've all, everybody who's who's into journalism, you know, maybe that idea of the foreign correspondent, the mythology of the foreign correspondent is really appealing. But, you know, the more you look at it, you can see that it's almost sort of a trope of colonialism, this idea that we go into another country, we're separate, we embed ourselves, but we're not necessarily really invested as, as human beings in that country per se. Not that some people haven't become that way and great reporting hasn't come out of foreign correspondents covering different communities. I had a similar experience when I went to, to Tajikistan at the invitation of the state department back in 2018, you know, one of the training sessions that I went to, there were a group of local reporters and several of them were w- women. And one of the women, one of the women, you know, I had a long conversation with her through an interpreter, although she didn't know some English. And, you know, I kind of got a sense of challenges that she faced. Her husband was a journalist, and she talked about how the way their country was, there were just certain types of things they couldn't write about, and that the impression was that whatever writing was done was really under his byline, but she was one who was you know, doing an equal amount or equal share or maybe even more of the reporting on whatever the particular story was. And it was sort of fascinating because it was a you know, it's a situation you wouldn't necessarily encounter you know, just being a local reporter here in in the U.S. But you begin to see how journalism operates in a different context when you go overseas. So you've explained sort of what your mission is. How are you accomplishing that mission?
1: There are so many layers to global press. And so, you know, we've been around for almost 17 years now. <laughs> And over the last 17 years, we have really honed a model that does three really important things. First is we identify media markets across the world that are most in need of the global press intervention. Two, we train local women journalists, and I'll talk a little bit more about why women uh, later. And third, we run an award-winning multilingual news organization that distributes our stories in six languages, both to local and international publications across the world. So, you know, it's it's media development, it's journalism education, and it's the production and publication of exceptional journalism.
0: How do you identify those candidates? And and actually just sort of follow up to the thing that you <laughs> sort of mentioned aside, why women?
1: Across the world, I think we have to come to terms with a couple of things, right? And first and foremost, we know that there is an evidence-based correlation between who works in a newsroom and who ends up being quoted and featured in stories, right? So across the world, two-thirds of international news is reported by men. About a quarter of international news sources are women, right? That's not an accident. That's how it works. But in every country, every media market across the world, media has one thing in common. It is owned and controlled by the elite. Now, the elite looks different in different cultures, communities, contexts. But what we do at Global Press when we decide on a market is we are looking for what are the barriers to entry that are preventing some people from not being able to pursue careers in journalism, right? Sometimes that's gender. Sometimes that's race. It's tribe. It's caste. It's religion. It's geography. It's language. There's all these different barriers that prevent certain types of people from taking up careers in journalism. So what we do when we go into a new community is we do a full assessment of the population, right? Who lives here? All those different criteria I just mentioned, we're looking at that. Then we do an assessment of local media. Who's working in journalism? Who owns the media? Who's controlling the stories? And then we ask a really simple question. Who's missing? Our mission then is to go out and find the people that are missing. And in nearly every media market on earth, women are underrepresented in newsrooms. Where they do have jobs in journalism, too many are still relegated to the lifestyle and the fashion pages and the opinion columns, rather than being the producers and the purveyors of really high quality journalism on very serious topics. So by finding these candidates, eliminating those barriers to entry, we provide them with really high quality training where we're teaching foundational journalism skills. About half of the women who come to our program have no prior experience in journalism. And the other half have varying degrees of like a little bit to a lot of of experience in local media. So. You know, the why women question is one that over the last 17 years I've probably received more than any other. And I think that, you know, the obvious follow-up question is like, well, if you're trying to build diverse representative newsrooms, like, why would you just employ women? And the answer to that extends to our distribution strategy, right? So once our journalists graduate from our training program, they get full-time jobs working for our publication. So these are good jobs, salary jobs, health benefits, you know, paid family leave, maternity leave, safety and security. These are great local journalism jobs, right? I think that's another core tidbit we should come back to, Is which is, you know, across the world, it's very easy to lament the poor quality of journalism in the world. But we often don't make the link to the fact that the majority of journalism jobs are pretty poor quality employment, Right. So by providing this really high quality employment, we are able to not only retain our journalists over time, we're able to give them the tools that they need to produce the really exceptional stories that the world needs. So once they're working for our publication and they're producing these incredible stories, we distribute all of our stories for free to a robust network of local and international partners. So if you take a place like Sri Lanka, for example, right, the majority of media in Sri Lanka is controlled out of Colombo. And it is primarily run by the Sinhala community, right? At Global Press, our news bureaus are in the northern part of Sri Lanka. So they're in Jaffna, they're in Manar, and all of our reporters come from the Tamil community. Now, it is very easy to make the argument, well, that's not diverse, that's not representative. The point is, we take those stories and we distribute them for free across local media so that we are giving those local communities more representative, more robust access to information from populations of people from places in the country that they would never otherwise hear about. So it's not just about us building our own diverse representative news bureaus, which of course we take very seriously, but it's also about diversifying representation and entire markets media. So by having women at the center of this, we're able to do a couple of really important things. One, we're able to provide women incredible jobs in journalism. Two, we're able to level up the kinds of stories that only local women can tell. And from there, we see extraordinary community impacts. I'll give you a quick example. So we operate several news bureaus throughout the country of Mongolia, right? Mongolia is a place that receives almost no international news coverage and has a really uh, fascinating and complex local media scene where the majority of media is located in Ulaanbaatar, the capital. So, we have a reporter who names Corlu, and she is working out of a rural province in Mongolia. And two years ago, she wrote a story about the practice of virginity testing in public high schools in Mongolia. And her story was about the, the teenage girls who were protesting the practice. So, Corlu wrote about the story, got some attention from government. And a couple months after her story was published, government was like, oh, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. We'll try not to do that anymore. So, Corlu waited a year. And she followed up on the story, right? Critical component of local journalists. They're able to follow up stories over time. They're able to hold power to account over time, unlike a parachute journalist who pops in and pops out, right? So Corlew follows up the story a year later, and she finds, in fact, no, the practice hasn't stopped. In fact, girls across her whole community are telling her this exam is happening without their consent. So she does a follow-up story we syndicate the story widely, including with one of our television partners here in the United States, PBS NewsHour. Corlu and her sources go on PBS NewsHour, talking about the practice. A Couple months later, the government comes out and officially says, okay, fine, we're gonna ban the practice. And that was last October and they have in fact banned the practice. So when you have local journalists, local women journalists in particular, right? This is not a story that a foreigner could have gotten. It's not even a story that a man could have gotten. But when you have a local woman in a local community with the trust of her community and the employment to tell impactful stories over time, and then a robust distribution network to get those stories out in front of millions of people around the world, that's when we can really see the truest and most powerful impact of journalism.
0: I like your approach. It's very pragmatic, this idea that we don't have to build a necessarily diverse set of reporters to cover something. We need to sort of fill in the gaps. What is missing? And more often than not, it's women reporters. You know, before we turn on the mics, one of the things you mentioned is, are safety issues. It's not unknown that certainly like in the digital space that women reporters disproportionately receive, you know, more trolling. You know, they have people that target them because they're women. I would imagine that in some of the countries where maybe it's not traditional to have women in those positions, what type of dangers do they run into you know what type of challenges do they have
1: so safety and security i think is it's absolutely the most important component of our work and of everything i've built in the last 17 years i think i am most proud of our duty of care program and a global press duty of care refers to the really interconnected safety and security needs that includes physical security, emotional security, digital security, legal security, designed specifically for local women journalists, people for whom extraction is not an option, right? And I think when we think about parity in the industry, there's very little security parity between a foreign correspondent and a local journalist. Because you know, if you or I, Democratic Republic of Congo right now, what would we do? We'd hop on an airplane or we'd get to an embassy and we'd be okay. For the women journalists of global press, we know that extraction is not an option. So we had to design a full scope security methodology to provide for that security over time, right? Which means that not only do we have to keep our reporters physically safe while they're reporting a story, but we have to have long-term safety and security strategies because these women are in the community over time. People know where they are. And, you know, it's something we don't talk about much in the space, but, you know, if you look at the, the Committee to Protect Journalists database of all the journalists killed in the last 30 years, you'll see that 88% of them are local journalists, right? And I think there's really a mentality that local journalists are hard to keep safe over time because, you know, they are so exposed and their risks are, are so ongoing. And that's certainly true. There are absolutely stories that Global Press has had to put down or not able to publish because of the security concerns. But, you know, on a daily basis, our reporters are facing a litany of risks. But the key is that very few of those risks are unpredictable. So with duty of care, we take a real risk mitigation approach as opposed to just crisis response, which tends to be very common in the industry. So, you know, for a reporter who is living in you know, a part of the Caribbean, like Haiti or Puerto Rico, and, and hurricane season is, is up and coming, we need to make sure that they have what they need to stay safe for the season. If a reporter has a sensitive story coming out, we make sure that she has an online security strategy. We make sure that, you know, reporters who are covering difficult stories have security while they're reporting. So we take a real risk mitigation approach, but, you know, the communities where we work are really challenging. Right, Mexico is now widely known to be the most dangerous place in the world for journalists. I have journalists across seven states in Mexico. You no know, places like Zimbabwe or Democratic Republic of Congo that are notoriously hostile to journalists. Our reporters are going to face everything from you know harassment from from government sources confiscating cameras or laptops, threats from you know non-state actors in the Congo. We have reporters in areas where there are you know more than a hundred active armed groups right now you know, the the focus on security is constant. But I think the power dynamic and how we approach security is really different. So each journalist at Global Press is really in charge of her own security. Each reporter can design her own security plan. And then we implement it, right? We put the resources and the strength behind it. You mentioned online security, which is, you know, huge. 70% of women journalists say that they face online harassment. And it's now a top reason why women are leaving the field. And as someone who's experienced it myself, I can tell you that it is no picnic. But also, you know, I think what's important is that newsrooms like ours and and all newsrooms really are taking a more proactive approach to mental health, right? So we have a huge mental health and wellness program at Global Press where we actually built something called the Global Press Wellness Network that is a network of licensed mental health providers who speak the languages of each of our reporters, who we pay to be available to our reporters for free and unlimited sessions. Other members of our team, editors, fact checkers, they also have comprehensive mental health support through our partnership with Talkspace, where Global Press pays for every member of our team to have access to an individual counselor. We have countless wellness opportunities, you know, learnings, workshops, et cetera. So I think because wellness is such a core component of our organization, it helps reporters really understand how to navigate those risks on a variety of different levels.
0: So I'm going to ask you a few numbers questions (laughs) because I think I want to get some context. How many reporters are you currently employing and how many countries are you in?
1: Global Press right now has 57 full-time reporters around the world working out of about a dozen countries and 40 different bureaus within those dozen countries. So like in a place like Haiti, we have three bureaus. In a place like Congo, we have three different bureaus. So we try to really you know, make sure that we're not just covering a capital city, a place that has the majority of, of media, but that we are really pushing out into more and more rural and remote parts of different communities that receive almost no local or international coverage.
0: How do you identify which country that you're going to go into? And also, have there been instances where you think about going into a country, but then you change your mind because, you know, maybe the risks are too, too great?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the decision of where to go is a really, it's a really complex one because I mean, there is no shortage of places on earth where we could go. So we have to be, you know, really thoughtful about, about where we are choosing to make that long-term investment. You know, we prioritize a variety of things. Safety and security is top of the list. We do have some red lines. Like for example, global press will not open a bureau in a place where libel is punishable by death. Now, we've never been sued for libel. I doubt we ever will. But also there's a lot of places in the world where truth is not a defense against libel, and you know, a public stoning or something like that is not, 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 not in the card. Yeah, <laughs> not in the cards. So, you know, we do have some red lines in terms of security. You know, global press, North Korea is, you know, not coming anytime soon. We're really focused on a couple of key topics. Our reporters are really expert in reporting issues of labor and migration, women's health, as well as climate and climate adaptation. So we're always looking for places where we can tell really diverse stories on those topics. And yeah, over the last 17 years, there have been a handful of places where we opened bureaus, even in some cases, opened bureaus for some time. And because of safety and security reasons, we're not able to continue. So Cameroon, Rwanda, these are places where we had bureaus for actually years, but local circumstances made it so that we could not, even with our most robust duty of care efforts, keep those bureaus going.
0: Where do you see global press going? And I don't necessarily mean physically, but where do you see it? Going in the future. What do you see? Is there going to be a new direction? Are you going to continue to sort of grow the way you are? Are there types of stories that you want to cover that maybe you're not covering as deeply as you have?
1: A little bit all of the above, but I think the most important thing about global press is, you know, she was really an idea before her time, right? I started global press when I was twenty five years old, when the idea of local journalists being the storytellers of record. I mean, the number—if if you could count the number of rooms where you know I was patted on the head and, and politely asked to leave, so that the big boys could have their real conversations—like that is not a short list, but. The world is changing and the world has changed so profoundly over the last couple of years. We see a couple of things really acutely. I think that the global press model is increasingly moving from what was once considered niche to now very necessary. Audiences care more than they ever have before about who tells the story. People are also more ready and more willing to question systems and structures of power that have long relegated diverse voices, including and especially in fields like journalism. So I think the biggest way that global press is going to change is we are going to see other news organizations catch up to where we are with this idea of proximate representative coverage leading the way. And we already see a myriad of incredible examples of new news organizations, both in the US and around the world, that are really beginning to prioritize those core components, proximity and representation above all else. And that's not competition for us, right? That's a better world for everybody. And there is no shortage of incredible stories that need to be told. So, you know, we will continue to push into more and more remote and rural parts of the world where no one else is telling stories. And we will continue to tell the really exceptional stories for both local and global audiences that few others are, whether it's virginity testing in Mongolia or the use of mercury and gold mining in Zimbabwe, Or, you know, the incredible solutions and the ways that people across the world are combating climate change. Local journalists, I always say this and people think it's hyperbole, but it isn't. You know, local journalists can save the world if we just let them, right? If we just amplify their platforms and we just give them the tools to inform us about what is happening around the world, the entire world will change.
0: People who don't understand journalists don't understand that point, that Journalists, by and large, are optimistic. I mean, you get this idea that they're cynical, but you know, you have to be an optimist to be a journalist. You have to believe that telling a story is going to change things. And I think a lot of people don't understand that that's kind of what our personality is. That you know, if they make something difficult for you, that doesn't necessarily make us want to go away. That makes us want to look a little closer at what's going on. You know, what you're doing is is just so spot on. I really admire what you're doing and, and. the way you're doing it, I think beyond just the safety aspect of it, but the idea that you've put thought into mental health and made that part of the formula, it's just amazing that that has taken so long for so many newsrooms to think about that being an issue that, oh yeah, well maybe the reason we have, you know, have a poor retention rate for our employees is they're burnt out or you know they're not happy with the hours or the, the types of stories they're doing. Now, I, I was, was going to ask you about if you'd seen impact from other news organizations, but I guess what you're saying is that there are others popping up and sort of adopting the model from whatever their particular angle is.
1: Journalism is changing, right? And I think historically, one of the biggest obstacles that I faced have faced, you know, in the last 17 years of doing this, Is the historical representation of local women from places like Mexico or across the continent of Africa have in media, like movies, television, journalism? Is their their victims, right? They're hopeless, hapless, penniless, just kind of like, you know, constant victims and survivor in that cycle of like victimhood, survivorhood, et cetera.
0: They have no agency in their no agency,
1: no ambition, just like. So when I come to the table and I say, actually, this woman in the Democratic Republic of Congo is the solution. She is the one, right? I have been known to make people uncomfortable in philanthropic settings when they ask me to describe the beneficiaries of global press, right? Because I think in a traditional philanthropic context, people are waiting for some very, like, you know, elaborate description of, you know, the poor African woman who has, like, you know, risen to like classic like rags to riches nonprofit story, and that's never my story. The response is you are the beneficiary of global press because of this extraordinary journalist who is committed to dignity and precision and accuracy and understands the power of narrative. You have the ability to understand the world better. You are the beneficiary of global press. And I think that that has taken some time for people to get used to. But I also think that, you know, the the caliber of journalists that we have at global press and around the world that, you know, we work with all the time, their power is really undeniable. That is very much the future. Local journalists are the future of our entire industry. And it's really just it's really just a matter of time. You know, I teach a course at Georgetown and I'm so inspired by this up-and-coming generation of news producers and news consumers because they're less obsessed with like the sort of legacy media, like, oh, I want to work at the New York Times and like that's all I ever want to do. They don't care about working at the New York Times. They want to do journalism that matters. They want to understand things like impact and representation. And I think, you know, it's really only a matter of time until the people leading many parts of, of legacy media are replaced by people with a much more forward-thinking definition of of what good journalism is. And I think that that moment is coming.
0: Yeah. As somebody who's done this podcast for 10 years, I can tell you the the arc of people trying to recreate the large, you know, city daily newspaper, that structure mm-hmm. that we're gonna tell you what you know, the news is, but not really understanding that all of that stuff has changed. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think we're on a good path in journalism and in its efforts like what global press is doing and the types of reporters it is supporting, the type of journalism it's supporting. I think that's really kind of the thing that leads us.
1: Global press operates, you know, we don't cover news in the United States, but if you look in the United States market, I look at newsrooms like Capital B or the 19th, organizations that are popping up and have these really incredible commitments to, to diversity, to representation, to finding proximate storytellers, to really serve target audiences, that is absolutely the the future.
0: Yeah, I agree. Christy, this has been fun. I think I could talk to you a long time about (laughs) uh, the different stories that your reporters are working on. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Lemia Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.